let's be honest, death in church is hard to talk about, isn't it? It is. In fact, um, one Sunday morning, there was a preacher who noticed a young boy named Alex out in the foyer, standing at the church, looking at a big golden plaque. It was covered with names and had small USA flags mounted on both sides of it. And the seven-year-old had been standing there for a long time, taking in that golden plaque. The preacher, full of discernment, walked over and said, Alex, good morning. And the little boy said, good morning, pastor, but would not stop looking at this plaque. Pastor, what is this? The preacher looked at it somberly and said, well, son, this is a memorial to all the young men and women who died in the service. Well, soberly in silence, they just stood there together, staring at it. And then Alex's little voice, barely audible and trembling, said, Pastor, which service? Was it the 8.30 or the 10? (laughs) See, death is hard to talk about. And we're talking about death again today. But when we get into the text, and it's about a man named Stephen, I want us not just to focus on the death, but the life of this man, how he lived and who he was, and, and what we learn about him and ourselves from the way he finished the race. And so we pick up in Acts 6, and we're going to go through Acts 6 and 7 today. In Acts 6, the, uh, the, the Jesus movement is growing rapidly. People are coming and continue to come and find Jesus as their Savior. In verse 7, chapter 6 says, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The Hebrew priests were the constant nemesis. Remember Luke? They constantly challenged Jesus at every turn. And, but in a shocking turn, we see that some of these who were the most religious had given their lives to Jesus. And you know, I've been in, in church work long enough that there is just something so beautiful when someone far from God, who thinks they've, they've sinned too much for God's grace, when they come to Jesus and they find that all is forgiven, it's a beautiful thing when they, they find Jesus. But there's something just as beautiful and often even more difficult for the person. And that's when those who believe they were saved all along wake up and realize that they weren't living and following Jesus like he had asked. You know, sometimes the hardest people to save are the people in church who believe they already are. The fact that the priests here come to Jesus is a big deal. A fresh faith, a fresh followership to those who thought they had it all figured out. Now, I'm saying this not to all of you, but this is to some of you here today who need to hear this. You've been in church for your whole life, and maybe it's time to ask yourself a question Am I actually following Jesus or am I just attending a church? Because there is a big difference. We move on. In Acts 6, the apostles are looking for someone to lead a certain ministry. They're looking for people to help them in ministry. And so we are introduced to this man named Stephen in verse 5. And it says, Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit is who they chose. What a reputation! He's full of faith in Jesus and full of the Holy Spirit. And it's recorded in the Bible. What a great man, what a great reputation. And in verse eight, we see Stephen in action. It says, now Stephen, a man full of God's power and grace, performed great wonders and signs among the people. And it's so, it's so cool we see Stephen, a Greek, not even a born Jewish person, not an apostle, not one of the 12, by the power of God, performing miracles. 
Stephen's faith and ministry is powerful and it catches the eye of the Hebrew leaders who have not come to faith in Jesus. And they react uh, in not such a great way to it. And in verse nine, we see this. Opposition arose and they began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up to the wisdom the spirit gave him as he spoke. Now, this is incredible. These religiously trained people who dedicated their lives, who had the Torah, the Old Testament memorized, memorized, could not debate um, Stephen when it came to the truth and wisdom of God because he was uh, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is important for us to know. As we go through our lives and we maybe open up about faith and talk to people maybe about what God has done for us and in us and who he is, we have to remember, do you have to have all the answers no. Where there'll be times you're talking to people and you don't have the answers? Often. And will there be times when you are uh, talking about your faith and the Spirit would give you wisdom for what, what that person needs? Yes. The Spirit, um, the Spirit, and man's knowledge is no match for the Spirit's knowledge, and we see that here. And they couldn't argue with him, so what do they do? In verse 11, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Remember the high religious council. They produced false witnesses who testified against him. Now this should sound very familiar. We read this in Luke, didn't we? Who else did they not have the wisdom or the moral standing to arrest? Who else uh, they brought false charges of blasphemy against? Who else did they bring before the, the Sanhedrin and produce false witnesses and false testimony? Who else? Jesus. They did it for Jesus. And, and Stephen is brought before this very council, these very people who saw Jesus tortured and then handed over to be crucified. And after the parade of false witnesses, and accusations. You know, we turn to uh, Acts 7, and it just says this. The high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? Stephen, you claim that Jesus will destroy the temple. You claim that you're going to change all the customs of Moses. Are these charges true? Now, Stephen responds and begins to take them to task. He doesn't answer yes. He doesn't answer no. He doesn't start with Moses. He doesn't even start with Jesus. He starts his sermon, it's the longest recorded in Acts, and he goes all the way back, thousands of years before Jesus, before Moses, before any of it, to the first patriarch of the Hebrews, to Abraham, who was called by God before they were even called Israel. He replies in verse two, brothers and sisters, listen to me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, now, I, I, I would encourage you if you're ever stuck in a situation where you need to have an answer, or you're, you're brought before people and you need to give an account for maybe something that went wrong at work or something that just happened in your marriage, I would, I would not choose the model that Stephen does here. Well, there was a guy named Abraham who was not yet in Mesopotamia. It's not the best opening argument. In fact, um, from experience, I'll tell you this. When I was in my early 20s, I stood before the Baptist Sanhedrin at a Bible college um, Sorry, Sanhedrin. But did I say that? The Supreme Disciplinary Council at a Bible college that I had and followed in my parents' footsteps to get my Bible degree. And uh, I, this is my second time in front of them in 30 days, which is still unprecedented, and that record has not been broken. <laughs> I stood before the Sanhedrin, uh, the, the, the council, and, they, and they, they read the charges, and they brought some people in, and they may or may not have been false testimony. I don't get into all that. 
They said, Daniel, is it true that you have led your fraternity and, and friends to commit pranks against the campus and yada, 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 the rest of it you don't need to know about. Um, and I stood there and I had a couple of different ways I could go about defending myself. And one was the route that Jesus did, which is meekness and silence. But I, did, I was 20 and I didn't have any of that in me. I, I, <laughs> I, but standing there, I got empowered. I felt this thing come over me and something welled up within me and I, just like Stephen, I said, brothers and sisters, listen to me. God <laughs> appeared to our father Abraham before the days of Mesopotamia. And I wish at that point I had known how that speech went for Stephen because <laughs> that really would have informed me um, about the reason it went the way it went. But Stephen was asked to present his arguments about now and he goes back and says, well, let's go back thousands of years to Abraham. Now he's talking to learned people who know the history. He's speaking their language, their culture. He's, he's talking, he's preaching to the choir at this point. They want to hear, okay, well, this is, are you going to undo the customs? What is this Jesus thing? He's off to a good start. He's talking about Abraham. That's a good place to start. And he goes and he hits all the highlights of the Old Testament. But with an amazing twist at the end, they didn't see coming. He starts with uh, Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, the big three. Then he, he's not done yet. He goes to Joseph, my favorite person in the Old Testament. He talks about his life. And then he gets to Moses, whose customs Stephen is being accused of trying to break. He gives a great summary of Moses' life and ministry and God's work through him. And then he, then he gets to the temple and the tabernacle. I mean, it is a who's who and what's what. And I would encourage you um, in your own time to go read Acts chapter seven to just see the story arc of God through the Old Testament to what led to where we are now. It's a great synopsis of, of all that had happened. And Stephen, he gets, he gets done and they must have just been in, like, wow. This Greek guy, he knows his stuff. He knows his Bible. But then after all the highlights of the prophets and patriarchs, he finishes like this. Therefore, you stiff-necked people, you're just like your ancestors resisting the Holy Spirit. You killed the prophets who told you of the Messiah, and then when the Messiah came, you killed him too. You received divine instruction, but you refused to obey it. Now, how do you think that goes over? <laughs> he gives this amazing sermon, the longest one in Acts, and then he ends it with, and you, which I'm, I'm hoping to end that way today. It's going to be awesome at the end. He, he ends it with, with you, and, and you killed, and, and oh, man. Stephen could have crumbled and cowered, and he could have, in, like, kept his, could have kept his life. But instead, he opens up his life, and he speaks about what he knows, and he ends with Jesus the Savior. And it says here that the religious council, it says they gnashed their teeth. Ugh. They gnashed their teeth. They're so angry. They grab Stephen, they drag him out of the city, and they begin to stone him. Now, although both are legal, I need to tell you that getting stoned in ancient Israel and getting stoned in Carbondale is a much different thing. I need to clarify, because I don't want there to be any, I don't want any misconceptions about what Stephen went through. In the ancient times, when they were low on weapons, they would take somebody out and they would throw rocks at them until they died from trauma. What a brutal way to go. I barely survived the Baptist Sanhedrin with their verdict. And Stephen gets the same verdict. And it's, it's, as he's being bludgeoned, he prays, Lord, receive my spirit. And he cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. As they take his life, he passes. Now again, this is very similar to Jesus. 
Both are brought to the court over false, false charges. Both are, are dragged outside of the city and, and executed. Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen said, Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And Stephen says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And it's just obvious and it is awesome to see that Stephen identified so closely with Jesus, so much in his heart that he wanted to identify with Jesus in his life. He wanted to live like Jesus. He wanted to speak like Jesus. He wanted to be like Jesus, and he was willing to die like Jesus. He so identified with his Savior that we see these similarities just in the way they live and in the way they pass. Stephen's the first martyr of Christianity. He's the first recorded to die for the sake of Jesus. He's not the last, but after this moment, after Stephen passes, the Christian faith becomes kind of a missionary movement. We're going to see it change. We're going to see it spark. And Soren Kierkegaard says this. He says, a tyrant dies and his, and his rule is over. But a martyr dies and his rule just begins. We saw that with Jesus. And we see with Stephen as he gives up his life here and the movement takes off. Stephen gave his life for what he loved and valued most. His faith and love for Jesus was far greater than his concern for what other people around him thought about his beliefs. If he cared about what they had thought about his beliefs, he would still be alive and we would not be talking about him today. Now I have a question. It's kind of a strange question. How does Jesus respond to this? How does Jesus respond to people who have amazing acts of faith and moments of faith? What does Jesus think about? Have you ever thought about what Jesus thinks about when he thinks about you? You ever thought about what he thinks about when he thinks about you? Good, bad? It's a strange question. When Jesus looks from heaven and sees people standing in faith, living by faith, or even dying by faith, what does he think about that? When you choose to live by faith and declare boldly your beliefs and your faith, what does he think about you? When we decide to finally, when we decide finally that we care more about our faith than how people will react to it, how does he react to us? When we choose to die to our reputations and live for redemption, what does God think about us? To answer this question, I'll need to take a historical detour. In the Gospels, it is recorded time after time from Jesus' own lips, own words, that when he dies and resurrects, he will be seated at the right hand of God. He says it over and over. I will be seated at the right hand of God. Now, the, the, it's, it's a place of honor. There's a lot to talk about there, but the, the right hand of God is a place of equal honor, equal authority, and divine rule. And the book of Hebrews even, even says it this way. Once Jesus made an offering for all time, for all the sacrifice of sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He, there was no more sacrifices needed. He made the sacrifice and he sat down at the right hand of God. Even in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, it says the Messiah will sit at the right hand of God. This is throughout the Bible. He will sit at the right hand of God. Why do I tell you this? Because when we decide to live our faith, and if need be, even die for it, I can tell you how Jesus responds to us when we live boldly at our faith. Back to Stephen. At the end of his life, he maybe only has moments left. He had such a love for Jesus that he could not deny his Savior, though it cost him his life. 
He had such faith in Jesus that he would risk everything and let God be in charge of the result, even if it was tragic. Surrounded by his executioners, we pick up in verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. What a moment. In the waning seconds of his life, Stephen there looks up into heaven and God gives him a glimpse of glory in God himself. And as if God is telling him, I see you, my son. I see you. Do you see me? But that's not the end of the vision. Because at this moment, he's feeling rather alone right there, surrounded by his executioners. He's been dragged outside the city gates. He's been thrown in the dirt. He's surrounded by angry people who want his blood because he will not deny Jesus. Their voices are yelling. Their stones are held high in white-knuckled hands. And it says, but Stephen, still full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus saw the faith of Stephen and it brought him out of his seat. Jesus, Savior, Creator, saw the faith of his beloved son standing for him in front of the world, living and even dying for his faith. And all those scriptures says he's seated at the right hand of God. Jesus could no longer stay in his chair. He comes to his feet in honor of one of his children who counted loving God greater than being loved by the world. Stephen's faith gets a standing ovation from the King of Kings. And as Christopher James has quoted, while Stephen is confessing Christ before men, he looks up and sees Christ confessing him to God. And the moment Stephen breathed his last and his eyes opened, who do you think welcomed him there? Well done. Well done, good and faithful son. Billy Graham stated, my, heaven, my home is heaven. I'm just traveling through this world. And Stephen understood this. And he had a blessed assurance of where his soul belonged. And it empowered him to risk and live boldly regardless of, this, of the result. Orchard, do we have a faith that can bring Jesus to his feet? Are we a people who will stand for our faith that will bring the Savior out of his chair? Do we have a boldness brewing within us that longs to declare my love of God far surpasses my love of this world? Are we beginning to see that there's a path of faith that's narrow for each of us and it's so powerful it transforms us and it transforms those around us and it gets us an ovation from our Father? Are you feeling yet this call to step up and step out and trust Jesus in bold ways? Now for us, it looks different than Stephen. I don't think any of us will be stoned outside the city in, the Israel, in this context. <laughs> but what does it look like for you? 
What does it look like for you to have a bold stand, to boldly stand against things you should not do and say no, even though the culture would say why not? What does it look like for you to take a bold stand of faith and, and just maybe speak your testimony? Or to tell somebody you're, you're praying, you don't have to die outside the city gates to have bold faith. What does it look like for you to have bold faith that brings Jesus to his feet? Listen, the Jesus movement is built on such people. The type of people mentioned in Revelation who overcame the accuser by the power of Jesus, the power of telling their testimony, and it says they did not love their lives so much that they would shrink back from awkwardness or, or hardship or even death. A Jesus movement is built on people who have so much love for God that they're willing to give it all because he gave it all for them. A Jesus movement is when you decide, you make the decision that you are tired of being silent and afraid and, you are, and, and you're tired of being more concerned about what the world thinks about your faith and you finally just start living it. kingdom's waiting for these people. It's waiting for us. I want to live my life in such a way that brings Jesus to his feet. And it's easy to hear a sermon like this and, and feel the question is, would I die for Jesus? And we say, yeah, I'd die for Jesus, but that's the wrong question. I'm not asking you if you would die for Jesus. The question of this is, the real question is, will you live for him? I don't want to know if you have enough faith to die for him. Do you have enough faith to live for a faith that brings Jesus out of his chair. Boldly say no to what you say no to and say yes to what he asks you to say yes to you. Do you have that faith? Do you feel the brewing within you? Because if Jesus is real and he is who he says he is, then someday we'll be face to face. And all this life will be put into perspective for us. And all the fears that we now have will seem so small. And all the opportunities of faith we had will be so obvious. And so, Orchard, let's be a people of faith like Stephen, people of a Jesus movement. What would happen as a church if we gave ourselves fully to this kind of faith? How would we be different? How would you, your marriage, your life, your, your work, how would you be different? How would this community begin to be different? as they saw people who loved God and loved people and were compassionate and believed in justice and who spoke truth and spoke encouragement and spoke love in a world that doesn't have those things. What kind of church would we be if we love God above all things and love people, all people equally and talked about our faith and walked our faith? It'd be like for those of you who are far from Jesus, it would be for you coming to know him and knowing you are fully forgiven, no matter what you've done. It would be those of you who are new to the faith, you would find out you are fully accepted. There's no dues to pay here. You are, you are a part of the body. And it'd be for those of you who are old in the faith to reignite that passion that you haven't had in decades with a new spiritual inspiration and begin to model for new believers what bold decisions look like. There's room for everyone here. There's room for you here in this movement. Billy Graham, who just passed away, and I believe got a standing ovation from our Savior, he had this quote, and I believe it pertains to Stephen in this movement. He said, courage is contagious. When a brave man or woman takes a stand, the spines of others are stiffened. I say it like this. 
Courage is contagious. When a brave man or a brave woman takes a stand, the faith of others around them is strengthened. And there are some of you here today who are on the edge of boldness and your bold decisions will quicken the faith of others. Some far from God, some closer to God. And that's how this movement continues to grow is when you and your faith gets bold. Stephen stood for faith and the movement ignited. What would happen if we courageously stood and loved? So what's the application for this? What do we do with this in our own lives? Like we're not gonna be dragged outside the city in in stone. It's not gonna happen to us most likely. So how does this apply to us? Well, making bold decisions of faith in your life where you are is what God wants of you. And for some of you, you you've known Jesus and you know there are decisions that you have, a, you have refused to make, things he's asked you, you have refused to say yes to because you're afraid. He's asked you to make some faith decisions but pride or fear gets in the way. And so, Today, like Stephen, may you commit your heart to step forward and step forward into that bold faith, that bold decision. Even if the world thinks it's ridiculous, even if you've justified every reason it shouldn't be a big deal, with Stephen-like faith, step out and make a decision. Bring Jesus to his feet with your next spiritual choice. For many of us, we are beginning to feel the tug to live our faith in a strong way. It's igniting within us. As Charlie would say, to live a white-hot faith. And, and, and I have a question for you. Do you want your, do you want your best life now? That's, do you want it? Do you want, do you want how to get your best life now? Follow that prompt of God that says, come to me. Follow the prompt of God that says, go to them, go to them. Follow the prompt of God in your life as he calls you to go deeper and to dig into his word and to get to know him as creator, get to know his nature. Is your faith cold and stale? Listen, maybe it's time you stop doing the same thing you've always done and getting the same results. Try something new. Worship differently. I don't know. Maybe raise a pinky. Just start there. I don't even know what it would look like for you. But, but perhaps we just step out and try something new in faith. Read a new book. Worship a new way. I don't, I don't even know what it would look like, but what if we just followed those prompts of God step by step that follow, follow that sacred call, that sacred call of God that woos us deeper into relationship and our faith becomes hotter. And for each of us, this week you will have an opportunity. You will have an opportunity this week to love someone and speak to somebody about your faith in Jesus. Now, it might not be a sermon, and don't start with Abraham and Mesopotamia, okay? <laughs> Just don't even do it there. But you will have an opportunity to pray for somebody, to say, I'll pray, whatever it would look like for you to step out. You'll have an opportunity. And may we have Stephen-like faith this week to be people who say yes and step out and do that. It's so cool how God does this. God sees needy people all over this community. He loves the people all over and he brings them to people like you so that you can speak his words and you can love on them. He loves them that much and he loves you that much to give you that opportunity. As we finish Stephen's story, it's important to notice one more thing. In this account, when things got difficult, where and who did Jesus fix his gaze upon? Sorry, where and who did Stephen fix his gaze upon? To where did he turn? 
Did he turn to the people around him who had the power to kill him? Did he look at the circumstances that were overwhelming? Oh my goodness! Did he look at the stones in their hand and see the problems? No! Did he look for his friends? Did he look for, for help and support? Where did he gaze? Where did he turn to? Stephen looked for Jesus. I would bet Stephen was the kind of man who looked to Jesus in the good times. And we know right here he looked to Jesus in the worst. He looked for Jesus in any situation. No matter how painful, no matter how much loss, no matter how joyful. It's important for each of us to ask ourselves, who am I looking for? Who am I looking to for my worth? And what audience am I living for? Orchard, whose applause do you live your life for? Am I living, am I living my life for an audience uh, at work, for applause at home, for applause of my colleagues or other mo- mothers or guys or females or friends? Because Stephen lived his life for an audience of one. And in the end, there was only one person's applause that he was living for. When you looked to Jesus for your applause, when you live for the audience of one, well, there's not, you know, there's not much the world can do to a person like that. The world can't touch a person like that. You live your life for an audience of one, and you are free from all the concerns that would be over here. Those are the world changers. Those are the people who change things. And those are the people that God is calling us to be a part of. So therefore, in light of all that God calls us to, let us live bold faith. Because one day, we will stand before him face to face. But until then, Orchard, may we be a people who lives a bold faith who takes bold steps, who says no to bold things and says yes when he asks. And may we live for an audience of one knowing that our acts of faith bring Jesus to his feet. As you take communion,